0: Glad to be here. I don't know if you have been to Oasis before, um, but I love it every time. It feels like such a joy and an honor uh, to be a part of the planning of this. Um, really? Already? Geek! <laughs> <laughs> Buckle up, guys. Um, it feels like such a joy and an honor to be a part of the planning of this every time and to see the beautiful thing that God weaves together through all the women um, that serve on the Oasis team. And I feel so humbled to be up here. Um, sorry, y'all. <laughs> oh, good. There's tissues there. Um, So like Sarah said, my name is Leslie. I'm on staff here at Ocean City Church. Um, And I'm so excited to be up here. Um, I wanna start by saying that I don't think I'm going to probably teach you something tonight that is something you've never heard. I don't think I'm going to have some super spiritual insight to something that maybe you don't already know, but I do know this. I know that over the past season of my life that God has been doing something really beautiful. Um, And as I've been preparing for this talk, I just had this image in my head of God weaving this beautiful tapestry together or painting a beautiful picture. And I feel like I get to come up tonight and just show it to you guys. And my prayer is that He would be made beautiful by what I have to say tonight that you would see what he's been doing, like I have, and that you would catch a glimpse of his beauty and his love. What he's been showing me over this past season is that his love for us, for me, is about delight and not duty. So a little about me before we get started. Like Sarah said, I'm married to Aaron. He was right back there playing bass. He had the sweet mustache. If you're wondering, I do like it. <laughs> so you can knock it all you want, but I like it. Um, we have three small kids. L is six, Emmy is four, James is almost two. They're so fun, you guys. Um, I am an organizer by nature. I am a problem solver. I like color-coded notes and calendars. I'm the type of person that enjoys planning the vacation just as much as I enjoy going on the vacation. Is anyone else like that? Yes, you are my people. I easily stay focused and committed to the task. I like order. I'm a classic Enneagram one for anyone that is wondering. I like things to have its place, everything to have its place, which you can imagine with three kids, it's broken me of that a little bit. And I blame them for anything that goes missing, although I'm pretty sure with every kid, like part of your brain also comes out. So we call it tidying amnesia at my house, when things go missing and Aaron's wondering where they are and I'm like, "Eh, I think I tidied that away, but I can't remember where. Um, Everything has its place, whether I can remember what it is or not, and that includes my emotions. I like to keep them in check, and by in check, I mostly mean I like to push them aside and keep moving in the direction I want to move. The real kicker here is that Aaron is an Enneagram 7, and if you know anything about the Enneagram, he likes to avoid his feelings at all costs. So we're just a piece of work at the Walsh household. (laughs) Um, But this summer, I became increasingly aware of some tension uh, that was kind of building up in my heart, that I kind of felt like I couldn't ignore. For someone that usually compartmentalizes that, I really felt like I was sitting with some stuff that I couldn't compartmentalize. Some stuff that had been going on for a while, and some stuff that was new. Some of you guys know that um, about four and a half years ago, my mom was hospitalized. Um, with a severe case of vertigo and not a day has gone by since then that she has not been dizzy, off balance and overstimulated by any extra movement around her. And for a woman whose greatest joy is her grandkids, all of whom move a lot and are very loud, um, it is heartbreaking as her daughter for that to be a part of her story. I have two friends who have undiagnosed neurological conditions and it is a constant roller coaster of how they're feeling day to day. I have never prayed harder for anything in my life and I don't think I've shed more tears over their condition, asking God to heal them and wondering why he is not. This summer, one of my closest friend's dad was diagnosed with cancer. It was a huge blow to their family. And another close friend of mine, husband, was in a life-altering car accident at the hands of an intoxicated driver. And he um, has basically been learning how to function ever since. And their life will never be the same. Some of his favorite things that he used to be able to do, he will never, ever be able to do again, is what doctors are telling him. So this summer, all of that's swirling around in my head and in my heart, and I'm really having a hard time of holding kind of these two things in my head, trusting that God is good, knowing that that's what his scriptures say, knowing I've experienced it in my life, but also being really confused and angry that things don't look good. And I don't think I'm alone here. I think that many of us can say that we've sat in that place of trusting God, wanting to trust God, but looking at life and saying, God, this doesn't look good. What is it for you that causes you to look up and say, I don't get it, God, I don't get it. If you're good, I don't get this. Is your marriage unfulfilling? Have you prayed? and cried and read all the books and tried all the tips, but nothing seems to change? Do you have a family member who's walking in the opposite direction of God? And no matter what you do, no matter what you say, say a lot, say a little, no turn seems to be happening. Are you apathetic? Are you begging God to ignite something in your heart and you just feel like you wake up every day disappointed over and over again that it's not there? Are you walking the road of infertility? Does that feel like death? Are you looking up at God saying, you could change it in an instant and you aren't and I don't know why. Are you lonely? Do you have a job you hate? Do you have a family member you hate? I don't know. What's well, confusing to you? I think we've all been there. Do you get mad or do you move quickly past your pain and your grief? So I'm sitting here feeling lots of big feelings. And when I'm feeling lots of big feelings, cause like I said, I normally try to compartmentalize those away. I'm thinking like, are other people feeling this way or is it just me? Anybody else think that? Are you like, am I particularly angry? Or other people angry too? So I started doing some research. I'm like, has anybody done like a study in this? Like what purpose of suffering? Do we understand it? How do we feel about suffering and pain? How does this affect how people see God? So this is what I found. We're gonna put something up on the screen. Pew Research Center did a study and it was sort of at the end of the pandemic. I don't know, was September 2021 the end? I don't know, y'all. Are we still in it? I don't know. Scientists, tell me. Dustin, is it over? Um, So the the title of the study was A Purpose of Suffering, and they asked some specific questions, and I pulled some of them out here. So you'll see on the left-hand side, one of the questions they asked was um, for people to say whether sometimes the suffering around them makes them doubt that God is all-powerful. And then also if the suffering around them made them doubt that God is entirely loving and kind. Well, you'll see, I pulled out the all U S adults and Protestants, which Protestants are Western Christians that are not Catholic. So that's a pretty low percentage, 16% of all American, all U S adults, and then 10% of Protestants. It's pretty low. I'm assuming those are the same people in both questions. And then to the right, you'll see they ask people whether they often, sometimes, rarely or never get angry with God for allowing so much suffering. This was surprising to me because as you can see, over three quarters of people, whether all adult, all US adults or Protestants said that they rarely or never get angry with God. This surprised me. So, not thinking that this survey was truthful or accurate, (laughs) as a true Enneagram One, I did my own survey. And what I found, and the women that I polled with these same questions, I sent a survey to a bunch of women, all Christians, um, different ages, different denominations. And what I found, at least for the question on the right, was that the results were almost completely opposite. So what I found in my survey, which is a little bit less well-reputed, was that over three quarters of women are often and sometimes angry at God about the suffering that they see. Actually, only one woman out of everyone that I sent this to said that she's never angry with God regarding pain and suffering around her. So I don't know why there's this discrepancy here. There could be a lot of reasons. This polled men and women. My survey only polled women. I'll let you read into that. I don't know if women are angrier or just more honest about being angry. Um, I don't know if some people are just too busy to even know what they feel. Do you ever have someone ask you, like, how you doing? And you're like, I don't know. <laughs> I haven't had time to think about how I'm doing. Are you kidding me? I think some people just don't know how they feel. Are some people stuffing the truth? Are we not being honest with ourselves? Are some people just not feeling angry? I don't know. I don't know why the discrepancy. Maybe the people I'm friends with are just like me, <laughs> honestly. But... I know that the the experiences of the people around me have have shown me that most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we're asking God, are you really loving? Are you really kind? Are you really good? Because I'm kind of mad right now at what you're letting happen right here. And I think this is so well summed up. A songwriter that I love, her name is Bethany Barnard. If you have not heard her newest album, Listen to it, write it down. Um, She says this in one of her songs. I know that you love me in my head, but the tightness in my chest has something else to say. We can have all the right theology in our mind, but sometimes our heart and even our body is telling a different story. So one day this summer, I'm feeling particularly raw with God and at this point, all I have are tears. Like I'm kind of raging on the inside and I'm just crying. Um, And when I would normally resist that, I felt invited by God to be honest with him. And I was with him one day and I had this picture in my head of a parent bending down and picking up a little kid, and the little kid is just mad and resisting being comforted and is just kicking and hitting the parent. I don't know if you've ever had a kid like that. We had one. And as I had that image in my head, I heard God say, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And I didn't know what the connection was at the time but I opened up to John 11 and I read it. And I just said, I'm gonna sit here for a while in this passage. And so there are some things uh, that God has revealed to me as I've been looking at this passage and studying this passage, and I wanna share some of it with you guys tonight. Like I said, tonight, if you hear nothing else, I want you to hear that Jesus' love for you is all about delight and not duty. So some of the things that I see in this passage, the first one is that his love is an invitation to believe who he is. We see in John 11, uh, in verse 14, it says, then Jesus told them plainly, this is the disciples before they've gone back to where Lazarus has died. Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And then in John 11, starting in 25, this is Jesus talking to Martha. And he says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God. So you've seen that this word believe is kind of woven throughout this passage. And what is it that he wants us to believe? I think for many of us, if we've been in the church for a while, when we're thinking about things that are hard or confusing, we think of this verse that I'm gonna put up, and someone's probably spoken this over you if you've been in some sort of painful or hard situation. It's Romans 8 28, and it says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are are called according to his purpose. Has someone said that to you before? It's true. He works all things together for good. But if it doesn't feel and look good, does that give you a lot of strength and comfort in the moment? It might, and I hope it does. Maybe after tonight it will. But it doesn't always give me the strength I need in the moment. Like, okay, this is, this is for my good or for her good, but this doesn't look good. It looks pretty crappy. So what else could God be saying here? What else does he want us to believe? So when I started digging into this and looking at the Greek, what I found was that what this word believe means in in verse 26 actually leads us to a new discussion about believing. So in 1126, Jesus says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The combination of words used here in the Greek is actually speaking about the nature and dignity of Christ. See, when we're going through something hard or someone we love is we're often thinking about believing God for what he will or can do, but Jesus is actually leading us to consider trusting him for who he is. Other places that this particular wording is used, in John six, Jesus says, believe that he is the holy one of God. In first John five, he says to believe that he is the Christ of God. And in John 10, he says to believe that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So simply put, Jesus is who he says he is, and he's on earth to reveal what the Father is like. He wants Martha and Mary and us today to believe who he is. So what Martha would have understood him to mean is her understanding of God, which would be the Old Testament. So I wanna look at some Old Testament verses really quick to go through some of the attributes of God that Jesus would be saying here, I am like this. So in Job 42, we see that God, Jesus is all powerful. I know that you can do all things, Job says. In Isaiah 54, we see that he is filled with love and compassion. In Psalm 145, David says, the Lord is trustworthy in all his words and loving in all his works. He's our protector. In Psalm 46, we see that God is our refuge and strength. He's full of understanding. In Isaiah 40, it says, he does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So these are just a few attributes of God, not an exhaustive list. But in the middle of things that we don't understand, I want to be reminded that Jesus is all powerful, that he's filled with love and compassion. He's trustworthy. He protects me. He's full of understanding when I am not. So Jesus wants us to believe. Believe what? He wants us to believe who he is. And we can't believe who he is without knowing who he is. So throughout this passage, he's going to show us more of that. So the next thing I feel like this passage is showing us, I said the first one was, his love is an invitation to believe who he is. And this next one is, his love is an invitation to have questions. I could also say here, be okay with having doubts, be confused, not have all the answers. So I wanna look at the differences in Martha and Mary's responses to Jesus when he comes on the scene. And you may have noticed this when Kate was reading. So we'll look at Martha first because she comes first in the story. And that starts in verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So I wanna contrast that with um, Mary's response. And I don't know if you caught this when when Kate read it, but Mary didn't leave the house when Jesus came. So I'm imagining when I'm reading this that she's probably not happy. The passage doesn't say that, it doesn't say she's mad or angry, but if you're grieving and one of your closest friends comes to see you and you don't go to see them, You're mad, right? I mean, the cold shoulder thing, we get that. I'm thinking she's not happy, and this is what happens. So finally, Martha goes to get her, Mary comes to Jesus, and in verse 32, Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him. She fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So they say the same thing. They start the same way. If you had been here, this would have been different. But Martha, me, says, but I know you have a plan. I know whatever you ask from God, he'll give you. I know that Lazarus will rise again on the last day. Mary, on the other hand, collapses at Jesus' feet and all she says kind of was, you're too late. You missed it. And if you had been here, it would have been different. Could we be rushing it just a little bit if we don't allow ourselves time to sit in our pain and confusion sometimes? We don't have to stay there forever. Please don't stay there forever. But could there be a different way? Look at the Psalms. The Psalms are filled with confusion and doubt and anger. I'm just gonna pick one. Psalm 13, David says, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? Have you ever found yourself there? Like another day of this God? I wanna make sure to say here that I wholeheartedly believe that Jesus loves to see our faith and trust in him, maybe especially in hard times. But what if we're missing something by rushing to say that we trust him and not allowing ourselves to feel pain? This world is filled with it. Like I said, we don't have to sit here forever, but what if pausing in our confusion, our frustration, our pain, actually leads us into his arms in a way that we would not experience otherwise if we rush to avoid them? Okay, lastly, his love is an invitation to believe who he is his love is an invitation to have questions, and his love is an invitation to experience his embrace. So we see in John 11:33, it says, When Jesus saw her, Mary, weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. I'll be honest, when I've read this passage before, I don't think I was really accurately imagining what this passage says. First of all, when I've read this passage, I'm confused because if you know what happens next, which many of you probably do, I mean, Jesus says it here. Show me where where you've laid him and they're gonna take Jesus to where Lazarus is buried. Jesus goes to the tomb and Lazarus walks out of it when Jesus tells him to. So why would Jesus prolong the pain? Why would he prolong the confusion? Knowing that the miracle is coming just do the miracle already. That's how I felt when I've read this, kind of mad. A friend reminded me that we were together years ago and someone preached a message on Jesus wept and I literally told her afterwards, I think that passage is dumb. (laughs) She said, I heard your your teaching on Jesus wept and I want to share this memory with you. I guess God's done something in your life and I'm like, he has. And I love that she shared that because I'm, y'all, that's how I felt. I'm like, this is dumb. Just do the miracle. Why are you allowing them to sit in more pain? I also haven't really pictured Jesus weeping, if I'm honest. Like maybe like a little tear down his face, but weeping, that's like ugly crying. Have you pictured Jesus' ugly cry before? I hadn't. I was an art major in college, so I know that there's a lot of art Um, that's been painted over the years of historical scenes. So when I started realizing, I think I've maybe been imagining this scene wrong, I decided to go look and see how it's been portrayed. Mainly because I like to have someone to blame. So I'm like, are people painting this wrong? Have I seen this portrayed wrong? So here, I'm gonna show you guys some of the paintings I found entitled, Jesus Wept. First one, this is probably mostly what I'm imagining. People are sad, Jesus is a little bit removed. It's called Jesus webbed, but I don't see that he's weeping here. Okay, next one. This one, I feel like he's embarrassed that he's crying. (laughs) I don't know, this one's just confusing to me. This is not what I pictured, but I did think it was kind of funny. All right, this next one's a little better. I mean, he's there, he's clearly comforting this woman who's crying. but it kind of feels like this is what he's supposed to do, right? Okay, this next one's my favorite, mainly because Jesus just looks straight up annoyed. This is a stained glass. This is a stained glass somewhere. So this isn't a church somewhere, y'all, showing people that go to this church what Jesus is like. I feel like this this stained glass should not be Jesus wept. It should be how Leslie feels when her children are weeping over things they don't understand. But do we ever feel like God kind of feels that way? Like, oh, you still don't get it. You're still asking me these same questions. I mean, any of those pictures do you find yourself feeling like Jesus is like that sometimes? Maybe a little too far away, comforting you because that's his job. Okay, not all is lost because there is an artist. His name is Daniel Bonnell, or Bonell. I'm not sure. And this is his portrayal of Jesus wept. And when this popped up in my Google Images, it literally took my breath away. So here's Jesus, actually weeping, holding Mary, in it with her, present, not distant. And if any picture sums up that Jesus' love is about delight and not duty, this is it. I printed a bunch out, so you can grab one on the way out. I don't want to forget to say that. Sorry, I'm just going to stare at it forever. So Jesus wept. And just like there are a lot of paintings about that, there are a lot of commentaries about why Jesus wept but we don't have to look very far because it tells us in the text why Jesus wept. In John 11:35, 35, it says, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. He wept because of love. Earlier in the passage, it says also that he loved Martha and Mary. His heart was filled with compassion. That's why he wept. So this past season, I've just been feeling invited by Jesus, really Him just saying, sit with me. With no agenda, bring it all. If you're feeling angry, bring your anger. If you're feeling apathetic, bring your apathy. If you're feeling joyful, bring your joy. And a friend shared in a group I was in um, during all of this that one time she was praying and she closed her eyes and she saw Jesus's face. And she's never been the same. And she can't wait to get to heaven because she's like, what if that's actually Jesus's face? What if that's what he looks like? And she said it's been like the most powerful time of prayer she's ever had. And I couldn't stop thinking about it, so I've been practicing this. I will just sit in my living room and I'll close my eyes and I'll just say, Jesus, show me your face. And when I have brought him all my junk that I've been feeling inside, I think what I imagined him being like is what I'm like a lot with my kids when they're just over and over again upset about the same thing, like grabbing them by the shoulders probably a little too tight and saying, just be patient. You don't understand. Just wait. Something really good is in store. Just wait. I think that's what I imagined that he'd be like. But what I found him to be like is that painting. Compassionate, loving, kind. Could he be wanting to do the same with you tonight? Like I said, his love for you is all about delight and not duty. And I know that there have got to be some of you out there tonight that are like, I don't need this. I don't even want this. I need God's power. If you knew what I was going through, you would know that I need God's power, not this. And what I wanna say to you tonight is what if his power is his love? As I've been thinking about what Jesus is like and asking me to show him more of himself I've just kind of had this um, idea in my head and I know that all illustrations just fall apart at some point and this one's certainly not gonna be perfect, but Jesus's love is more like Liam Neeson and Taken than it is Tom Hanks in Saving Private Ryan. Tom Hanks in Saving Private Ryan is sacrificing a lot, very committed to the task, but he's doing it because it's his job it's his duty to do that. Liam Neeson and Taken, committed, sacrificing it all, but why? Because he delights in his daughter and he wants her safe and whole and back with him. I think when we need help, we often imagine Jesus coming to our aid because it's his job. but he's coming to our aid and coming to us because he wants to know us and he wants us to know him. I'm reading this book called Gentle and Lowly and I know some of you guys have read it too. And as we're wrapping up, I wanna read this quote to you. It says, if you are in Christ, you have a friend who in your sorrow will never lob down a pep talk from heaven. He cannot bear to hold himself at a distance. Nothing can hold him back. His heart is too bound up with yours. Imagine how radically free our hearts could be if we believe that in our pain and in our joy, Jesus was with us, sharing in it. If you are grieving, he is grieving. If you are dancing, he is dancing. He's the closest, most intimate, most empathetic companion we have. Not because he has to, but because he wants to. We sang at the beginning of tonight, wouldn't it be like you, Jesus, to be different than we thought, different than we want, but better. As we head back into worship and as we move into a time of prayer, at some point, could you close your eyes and say, Jesus, I wanna see your face. And Jesus, would you do it? Would you do it, Jesus? We love you, Jesus. We know that you are good, that you are powerful. and we know that you wanna show us what you're like, that you're better than even our best imaginations of what you're like. More of you, Jesus, more of you, Jesus, more of you, Jesus, we love you and we thank you.